Well, it's great to be with all of you, whether you're uh, joining us from Elliott Hall or watching from home or right here in the sanctuary. Uh, I want to give a, just a little family update first. On any given week, there are hundreds of church members who volunteer their time and their giftedness and their passion. They, you, are the heart and soul of our church. And uh, we have consistently tried to communicate in my almost eight years here that we are not going to be a church that shouts, hey, we need volunteers. Why aren't you helping? Like, we don't ever want to guilt people into serving or just filling a spot. We don't want you to be voluntold what to do. And part of that is that serving in and through the local church is such sacred work. It is not about filling a spot, but joining in on what God is doing, whether you're ushering people into God's presence. Can I get a shout out for the ushers who serve us every week? Or you're mentoring students, or you're in our intercessory prayer ministry, or even working with the next generation in our children's ministry. And um, what I need to share with you this morning is just that um, we are at a place where on a given Sunday morning, we are having to turn away children from our Sunday school, especially at the 930 hour. And the problem is not that we lack space, it's that we lack volunteers. Our hope is to create environments where children, and so many of you I know for decades have served um, in Sunday school and you have poured into the next generation, and we try to create environments where they are learning about Jesus in an age-appropriate way. And the sad reality right now, whether it's just two years of COVID and the challenge that so many families are facing right now, is that we don't have enough volunteers to open up those classrooms. And so we have to say no to so many of the families who are showing up, um, and in particular, those families who show up late, who are often the families who are here for the first time. So that's a concern for us. We want to be honest and transparent with you. And if you think about your involvement in this church and uh, you think that uh, you might be able to, to serve on Sunday mornings, especially at the 930 hour, even for once a month to help create more room for the next generation to have that experience, that encounter with Jesus, uh, we'd love for you to stop by the Count Me In uh, volunteers that are going to be in the hunt lobby after our service. So there you go. Not about guilt, uh, not about, you know, forcing anyone, but we do want you to understand what a significant opportunity we have. And we want to keep that momentum going with so many new people coming to see what God's doing here. So let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for every leader who points our kids to Jesus, every volunteer, every teacher, and we ask, God, that for all of us, as we open up the scriptures now, that you would awaken in us greater faith and greater trust in you, even as we put what we learn into practice. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at some of these sayings that we think are in the good book, but they aren't in the good book. And the reason we're doing this is not to be judgmental when someone misquotes from the Bible, because I certainly have done that before. But we live in a day when there's so much misinformation. Right? We talk about fake news, false narratives, what sources can be trusted. It's like we have never had more access to information, but we need to be discerning and clear thinkers. That's part of what it means to love God with all our minds. We who are Presbyterian, I mean, this is our wheelhouse. And so this teaching series has really been an exercise in that kind of discernment. It's about looking at everything through the lens 
of what Scripture really has to say. Now, today's phrase is probably not one that many of us are confused about whether it's in the Bible or not, because as we're about to see, that would be quite anachronistic. But it's one of those phrases that we've probably heard or you've grown up, you know, hearing people say this or you've seen the bumper sticker before. And um, maybe we'll do this one more time, this heretical call and response where I'll say the first part and then you can try and fill in the blank. So here we go. Jesus is my... Okay, co-pilot. I heard a few people say it. At the 9.30, a lot of people said homeboy, and that's not what we're going for here. <laughs> Jesus is my co-pilot. You ever heard that before? Right? It's kind of this image of me and Jesus, and we're just driving this thing together. We're on a journey together. I'm sitting here, and he's sitting right next to me in, in the cockpit, and everywhere I go, everywhere we fly, like I'm flying with Jesus. What a great picture of life. I mean, you think about some of the great co-pilots throughout history, uh, beginning, of course, with the greatest co-pilot of all time, Goose. <laughs> what an incredibly encouraging, capable right-hand man to have next to you if you're Maverick, although technically Goose was not a co-pilot, he was a radar intercept officer, as I learned this week, but a great guy, which by the way, shameless Top Gun plug coming out Tuesday, all the Gen Xers are so fired up about this. Another famous co-pilot you have here, <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We don't have to go into this one if you know you know, and that's pretty much all I know when it comes to co-pilots. That's all I got. But let's play with this metaphor for a little bit. What do co-pilots actually do? I researched this over the last week. Co-pilots assist the captain. They help with navigation, safety checks, making sure everything is running correctly. They can even take over if the pilot or captain needs a break or passes out. Right? As long as you have a co-pilot, you're going to be okay. Uh, maybe you heard about this emergency landing. Was it last week or the week before of a small Cessna airplane in Florida where the captain of this plane passed out in the middle of the flight? There's a guy in the back of the plane had never flown before. He was on a fishing trip and they're like, you're gonna have to fly the plane. And so he gets into the cockpit and he calls air traffic control and he's like, what do I do? And they help him navigate and he actually lands the plane. Can you imagine having to do that? Well, here's what I'd like to suggest today. For so many of us, Jesus is my co-pilot is kind of the perfect arrangement for how we wanna live. It's perfect. He's always with me. Jesus never has to leave my side. He can help me navigate. He can make sure that all the instruments on my dashboard are where they need to be. I'm never alone. I mean, I've got the Son of God sitting right next to me, and He can help me at any moment. And I mean, what could be safer than that? God forbid I lose control. In the words of the great theologian Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel, right? I mean, this is perfect. What a great arrangement. Get me the bumper sticker. Sign me up. Only one problem, who's in charge? Who's in control? Me. I mean, this is American Western Christianity 101. Jesus, I want you in my life. I have read the instruction manual. I believe in you. I wanna to go to heaven with you when I die. I know you're there for me when I need you. I feel safe when you're with me. I just don't want you to be in charge. I'm the captain. But you know what, Jesus? You can be my co-pilot. So what happens when we take that idea and we look at it 
And we study it through the lens of Scripture. One of the ways that Jesus gets to the root of this in his teaching, it's something he talks about more than anything else in the Gospels. And some of you know where this is going. It comes down to this one word, kingdom. Now, we don't talk about the kingdom all that much, unless you're Callum or those across on the other side of the pond. But in Jesus' day, this was a commonplace word, and they knew that what he was talking about. And so to do this, we're going to have a little basic who, what, when, where exercise today to understand what Jesus was getting at when he talked about the kingdom. Four questions to help us understand the kingdom of God. And this is going to help us to understand what we're actually saying when we say, Jesus is my co-pilot. So first of all, who? Who has a kingdom? Everybody. This goes all the way back to the beginning of creation where God says about human beings, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over. Right? That's kingdom language right there at the beginning. What it means to be made in the image of God, that you rule over, you have dominion. Everybody has a kingdom, which leads to the second question, what is a kingdom? Your kingdom is that little sphere where what you say goes. It's where you're the captain, you're the pilot, you're in charge. Your kingdom, and this is technical language here, is the range of your effective will, which is why God gave you a body. It's your little kingdom. You're the captain of your body. You tell your body what to do, and it does it. God is giving us a little glimpse of the kingdom. And we begin to figure this out from early on in life, right? Children begin to learn. They have a kingdom. This is why my four-year-old daughter doesn't want to do anything I tell her right now. She doesn't want my kingdom violating her kingdom. This is why a toddler's favorite word is no, right? They're learning they have a kingdom and a range of their effective will, and they can say no to certain things like cauliflower or toothpaste. They don't want that in their kingdom. What's a toddler's second favorite word? My. Again, that's a kingdom word. It means I want to grow my kingdom. I want more stuff in my kingdom. What's a toddler's third favorite word? Daddy. Because they're getting smarter, right? I just made that up. I was trying to grow my kingdom up here. Uh, one more example about how kids are learning this. It's, you ever watch kids in the backseat of a car? And I know these days some of you have, you know, three row, car, uh, there's three rows of seats in your car. Some of you even have captain's chairs. Think about that terminology for a moment. Like, I'm the captain of what happens in this chair. This is my little kingdom. But some of us just have two rows. And what do kids sometimes do when they're sitting across in the back seat and there's two kids? They draw a line in the middle. There is a demilitarized zone in the middle of the back seat. And you better not cross over this line because if you do, you are encroaching on my kingdom. That's your kingdom over there, my kingdom over here. And they'll start to defend their kingdoms. They'll yell at each other. They'll launch missiles at each other. They'll hit each other. And then dad turns around because whose kingdom does he think the car is? Right? There's a, a comedian, Ken Davis, who says one little tap of the brakes can remind your kids who's in charge. <laughs> Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. It's where things go the way that you want them to go. And see, having a kingdom is actually a really good thing. God intended for you to learn how to lovingly rule and reign and exercise dominion in a way that is consistent with his character and his identity. 
But then along the way, something happens, and this is the story of the, the narrative of Scripture. Sin enters the picture. Rebellion kicks in. We may start with the most noble of intentions, but then we begin to veer off track, and sometimes we hurt people, and sometimes we abuse our power, and mostly, mostly we just want to build our own kingdoms. Then you have what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. It's where what God wants done is done, where everything is as God intended for it to be, where people love one another and honor one another and serve one another the way God has loved us. Jesus comes into this world and he announces this plan, this mission to bring God's kingdom up there, down here into our world. That's what Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Question, do you think he really meant that? Remember the first time my pastor, pastor of my college church, asked that question. I want to press on this for just a moment. Did Jesus really mean what he said when he said, we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven? Because if so, that is a different message than so many of the messages that I heard as I came to faith as a Christian growing up in the church, where the goal was not so much to get the kingdom of heaven down here into this world. The goal was to get me and to get us out of this sorry, God-forsaken world and up into heaven as soon as possible. But that's not what Jesus taught us to pray. I have a friend who said, Jesus did not teach us the Star Trek prayer. Any Trekkies here today? I have very little background when it comes to Star Trek, but I know enough to know that whenever anybody gets in trouble in Star Trek, they had a cry for help. They had a prayer. They called out. They needed a rescue. What did they say? Beam me up, Scotty. Okay? That's not what Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, beam me up. Get me out of here. No. He said, ask that God's kingdom would come down more and more, that it would break through and touch down into our lives and into our homes and into our marriages and into our streets and into our schools and our communities. And yes, even into our governments and into our cities and into our country and every place where there is, there is darkness and brokenness and evil and injustice. Dallas Willard wrote this book, and he talks about this in The Renovation of the Heart. It's a fabulous book. And here's what Willard says. And I've been kind of working through this sermon all week, and, and I've just, I've realized if there's any place that I'm going to lose you in this message, it's going to be right here. So whatever you've got to do to sit up straight or chug your coffee, here we go. This writer, Dallas Willard, says that one of the core mistakes of the American church is that it thinks that the basic goal is to get as many people as possibly ready to die and go to heaven. It aims to get people into heaven rather than to get heaven into people. And before you shout heresy, just stay with me here. What Willard argues, and I agree, is there's nothing wrong with wanting as many people as possible to go to heaven when they die. We should all want that, long for that, pray for that, work toward that. But here's the danger, he says. It is a self-defeating strategy if we're not teaching people and showing people how to die to self and how to lay down their kingdoms so that they can live in the reality of the kingdom of heaven in this life, in this world today. And this is going to be a lengthy quote, but I want you to see this. He writes, now... 
The project thus understood. This is the sole fixation on getting people into heaven when they die. That project is self-defeating, and here's why. It implodes upon itself because it creates groups of people who may be ready to die, but clearly are not ready to live. They rarely can get along with one another, much less those outside, meaning non-Christians, those outside the church. Often, their most intimate relations are tangles of reciprocal harm, coldness, and resentment. They have found ways of being Christian without becoming Christ-like. Translation, they're still in charge. They're the pilot, the captain of their own lives. They haven't yet learned to surrender their kingdoms to Jesus. And here's where it breaks down. Willard goes on. As a result, they actually fall far short of getting as many people as possible ready to die because the lives of the converted, that's us, church people, because the lives of the converted testify against the reality of the life that is truly life. He says the way to get as many people into heaven as you can, which of course is our goal, the way to do that is to get heaven into as many people as you can. That is to follow the path of genuine spiritual transformation or full-throttle discipleship to Jesus Christ. And what does full-throttle discipleship to Jesus means? It means he's not the co-pilot. He's in charge. He's leading. He's guiding. You have surrendered control. You have yielded total authority to Jesus. You still with me? So, who, what, then where is the kingdom? And this can get a little confusing because the kingdom of heaven, which is used interchangeably with the kingdom of God, it sounds a little bit like a place we go when we die. But let's look at the first sermon that Jesus ever gave. This is in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. You thought we were done with Mark? Uh Uh-uh. Mark 1. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In his first sermon, Jesus announces God's kingdom is not someplace up in a galaxy far, far away. It's not up there in the sky with the clouds and the harps. The kingdom of God has come near. So where is the kingdom? It's here. In our midst, heaven has come to earth in Jesus. Up there has come down here. It's all around us. The the kingdom exists anywhere God reigns as king. Which then leads us to that final question. We've done who, what, and where. So lastly, when is the kingdom? Look again at what Jesus says. The time has come. And the kingdom of God has come near. Now, the word that Jesus uses when he says the time has come, it's the Greek word kairos, which is not the typical word for time. That would be chronos, from which we get the word chronograph, right? Chronos time is measured by calendars and clocks. If my sermon goes over a certain amount of chronos time, some of you will just get up and walk out. It's tick-tock time, chronos But kairos time can't be measured like that. Kairos, kairos is opportunity time. It's that unique moment determined by God for the fulfillment of his purposes. So when Jesus says the time has come, the kingdom is here, he's not saying that it happened on March 23rd of AD 30, therefore the work is complete. 
Again, this can be a little confusing. It's like in one sense, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. It's now. It's in our midst. But at the same time, it hasn't fully come. And so the answer to that question, when is the kingdom, is kind of tricky. It is already, but it's not yet. In Jesus, the kingdom has already come, but it's not yet fully here. Already, not yet, and we live in the in-between. The kingdom is coming, God's presence, his reign, his grace, his love and mercy. They're invading our world every single day. Lives are being changed. You've seen this. You've witnessed this. He's changed your life. And yet, and yet, there is still so much darkness and evil and justice and, and, and so much suffering that goes unchecked. We've all seen in recent days the horrific, senseless shootings in a grocery store in Buffalo, a Presbyterian church in Southern California. And then just miles up the road from here at a hair salon in Koreatown, I was talking with one of our pastors, Ben Wong, who leads our Mandarin Chinese community. And he shared with me that, that one of the members of our church, one of their members, was a regular at that hair salon. So you can just imagine the, the fear and the anxiety and the anger of people in our own church family and what they're feeling right now. And we need to pray with and come alongside those who are in our Mandarin community. Sometimes when we hear about senseless violence and unprovoked wars and the innocent suffering, sometimes there's a phrase that we'll use. We'll say it's, it's like a living hell. It is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. It is a place where God's reign is rejected. And every act of suffering and oppression is a reminder that God's kingdom is not yet fully here. It's already, but it's not yet. And whenever we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, what we're asking, what we're saying is, God, would you push back against that darkness? Would your light break through and your rescue come and your justice roll down like waters? And would you do that even through me? And that can only happen if it is God's will and not mine ruling this world. God, your will be done. Because if God's kingdom is going to come, I'm going to have to give up control. I'm going to have to surrender. Thy will be done. Now, just to clarify, this doesn't mean we lose our freedom. It doesn't mean we become passive robots, but it is this call to surrender, to yield control to our Heavenly Father, which for those of us who are the hard-driven, type-A Westerners who love control, this loosening of the grip is one of the hardest things. And every time we say those words, your will be done, it's like we're loosening it. It's a moment of surrender. It's about laying down our kingdoms, laying down our lives. Every day we die to desires and ambitions and this need to always win and gain power and gain control. And we lay that all down so that we can gain the life that is in God's kingdom. It's about self-denial. Jesus you are in charge. I am no longer the captain. Now, self-denial, denying to self, dying to self, surrender. At first, these words, they sound terrible, miserable. It's a painful thing. And will it be painful? Yes, at times. But the call to lose our lives for the sake of Jesus is always an invitation into a far better life. This is Dallas Willard. 
The self-denial Jesus calls us to is always the surrender of a lesser, dying, petty, futile self for a greater eternal one. If you remember anything from today, the self-denial Jesus calls us into every day, every moment, is always the surrender of a lesser, petty, dying self for the sake of a greater eternal one. And the story of this book of God's people and of Jesus' followers in the early church. It is a story of those who discovered just that and it changed the world. They sold everything they had. They devoted themselves to one another. They loved their enemies. They, gave, they, they devoted their time, their energy, their careers, their families, their possessions, their security, even their lives. They laid down their lives. And here's the secret that shouldn't really be a secret at all. They did it with joy. And when the world around saw these people, these odd people joyfully laying down their kingdoms in order to serve this greater kingdom, the gospel writer Luke says they enjoyed the favor of all people. People were drawn to them. And it happened as a matter of history. It changed the Roman Empire. It changed the world for women and for children and for widows and for those with disabilities, for the least of these. It brought together rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. And we are gathered here because they laid down their kingdoms. And friends, we can do it again. So here's what I thought we could do. Just an invitation for all of us to lay down our kingdoms for a far greater, more eternal kind of life. We're going to pray this prayer one more time that Jesus taught us, but here's, here's what I'm hoping might feel just a little bit different. When we get to that line, your kingdom come, your will be done, what might it look like for you to pray and to own those words like in a way that maybe you've never felt before? Just total surrender. And I thought about whether I should say this or not, but I kind of I want you to feel the weightiness of those words. Like, am I really ready to give up control, to lay down my kingdom, my career, my reputation, my money, to give all that to God? And maybe if you're being really honest, you're not ready to pray those words. And I just want to give you permission to take these words as seriously as they really are. And there's a part of me that wonders if God might honor your integrity in that. Like, I'm not ready for that. And maybe for you, today begins with praying, God, would you help me to begin to trust you enough to lead me in that direction of yielding everything to you? So whatever this looks like for you, let's join our voices together, praying one more time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.